Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this MedHead series wherein we talk with Chrissy. By her own admission, Chrissy is a recovering alcoholic and she has very bravely agreed to be filmed on camera and to tell us her story. Hello, Chrissy. How are you? Good, thanks, Fergal. How are you? I'm very well. So, Chrissy, right now you've said to me that you are a recovering alcoholic and that you are very mm -hmm. active in a 12-step program. Yes. Give me a brief outline of what your life is like right now. What, what are the successes of your life right now? What are you doing with your life? Wow. Um, okay. So right now I work full time um, mm -hmm. in the drug and alcohol sector. Mm -hmm. um, I am studying uh, uni at night. So I'm studying a social science degree. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a wife. I'm a mum of three three children um a 13 year old and twin boys who are 11 mm -hmm. um so i spent a lot of time in the car racing around to activities mm -hmm. after school friends over sleepovers that sort of thing um i am as you mentioned active in in a 12-step program so that takes up mm -hmm. a lot of time as well uh, outside of work um mm -hmm. yeah and somewhere in there i try and fit some friendships and coffee in <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah so you you are a success you're a successful uh, employee, you're a successful counsellor, you're, you're a successful wife, you're a successful mother. But you are also a recovering alcoholic. So mm -hmm. let's go back to the very beginning. Where do you think it all started? Where do you think it all came from? Um, I think it all came from and I've been over this a number of times in my head mm -hmm. I think it was two worlds colliding really I think um I had a uh, genetic predisposition to alcoholism mm -hmm. so a lot of alcoholism um on the paternal side of my family um a lot of mental illness on the maternal side of my family mm -hmm. and even though I didn't grow up with my dad in the picture, um, I did grow up with a stepfather and there was a lot of family violence. So um, I suppose you would call that uh, a traumatic experience over about six or seven years. Um, and then, yeah, we moved, we moved around a lot and mm. just a very uh, unstable upbringing. Right. So there was a lot of instability. You were never sure of mm. yourself. You were never granted. So no. let's just, let's just uh, unpick that a little bit. So, your parents separated when you were at what age? My parents separated when I was two mm -hmm. um, and my mother remarried pretty quickly um, until I was about age eight or nine, they broke up. But so right. for that period of time, um, mm -hmm. as I said, there was family violence, mm -hmm. um, a whole lot of fighting. It wasn't unusual to hide in wardrobes and hide mm -hmm. under beds and with my sister who was 15 yeah. months younger. Yeah. Um, or we'd end up at some next door neighbor's place, you know, seeking refuge um, and we'd see mm. police lights out the front and what have you. But yeah, so mm. that went on for quite some time and then, and then they broke up and right. my mum and my sister and I set about, yeah, travelling. Right. So tell me about your father. What was, what was, uh, what was his story briefly? Mm, okay, so um, look, I... 
That's a good question. Um, Dad came from, I guess, um, middle upper class family. He um, he went to Scotch College in Melbourne. His sisters went to St Catherine's. So you know they they um, they went to good schools. They came from a good family. We just have alcoholism um, mm. in our blood. You know. So um, he so was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. Yeah, he All was, right. and, and um, your mother a functioning one, a functioning yeah. alcoholic. Yeah. yeah. Um, my mum, uh, this is a slightly, yeah, difficult question because, um, yeah, mum's, she's had, uh, she's had issues. Let's say that she's had, I, I, you know, mum and I have spoken about this. I think, um, she has an undiagnosed mental illness and, you know, um, Mm. she's just, she's found it tough at times. Yeah. Mm. So, um, mum said about, yeah, she loved to move around. She was kind of always looking for the next best thing. The grass was always greener. Mm. We moved from state to state, you know, mm. town to town, region to region, school to school. And, mm. um, and I remember saying to her at one stage, mum, like, when you meet a man, like with a boyfriend, do we have to move in? Cause like we'd, we'd moved in, we moved by the time I met my husband in my mid twenties, I'd lived in 45 or 50 houses. So, you All know, right. it was, right. yeah. So there was just a lot of mm. tra- transient. So, can you remember growing up with your biological father? No, I've got or, one no. memory of right, dad. Right. Yeah. So at the age of three, your parents split up and then your mother remarried and then you grew up with your stepfather who, who was then, uh, there, was a, there was violence, you said, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you think it affected your mother? Um, it certainly wasn't a positive influence. Mm. Um, Look, I'm sure it had an enormous effect. I'm sure it had a huge impact um, and I'm sure it affected her ability to parent. Um, my mum has got just some amazing things about her, you know, and I love I love my mum to bits. She just made some really, really bad choices and I don't say that in a punishing way or, mm. you know, in a way I'm not angry, you know, we've, we've been through all of this. I, I, I think, yeah, probably based on her uh, upbringing as well. I mean, I don't know. I, I think my mum has got underlying trauma that, mm. yeah, definitely right. played out in the way she lived her life. How do you think it affected you and your sister, this, this violence, this, this instability? Um, it was obviously like a scary time, but for some reason... I don't fear, this is weird, like, I don't actually fear violence. That's not, I'm not violent, thankfully, I'm not at all. Like, I'm, but I don't, if I meet um, a person that, how do I explain this? I don't fear being punched, but I fear, my greatest fear is if you don't like me. Mm. So somewhere along the line, it affected my self-esteem more so than, you know, my level of fear. So growing up. Did you feel normal? Did you feel like everybody else? Not at all. I felt really different. Yeah. I felt I felt really different. I felt like I didn't want people to know the truth about what happened at my home. I remember having a friend over one night um, and a massive tub chair being thrown through a huge window, like, you know, and, of course, she was never allowed back around. So whatever happened at my home was a secret. We then went from being very 
wealthy in in the community and when my mum divorced we had no money which was you know to most people okay but it really affected my mum and then the place where we lived was pretty horrible so I was embarrassed to have people back and you know it affected yes socially um not my I don't like to say standing but just my position I didn't know who I was where I fit in yeah I just and I went to I went to really wonderful schools because my dad in Queensland, although I didn't know him, paid for a private school education, which I'm Mm. always, you know, to this day really grateful for. But socially, I didn't fit that mould. I didn't fit in, you know. Um, And looking back, I can see that now. But I took that personally, like there's something wrong with me, you know. So do you think you you were experiencing any mental health disorders yourself when you were growing up? Yeah. I do. I had um, I had begun to self harm. Bef- I don't know if I was thirteen. It was before the age of fourteen. Mm. Um, so, and I had talked about suicide. I had talked about stuff and actually tried to starve myself at times. Like you, you know, I. Um, in retrospect, it was definitely a cry out for help. I mean, you know, if I'd wanted to get that right or to kill myself, like I'm sure I would have done it. Mm. I really wanted someone to listen and just, just, I think I wanted someone to just fix me and make everything okay. Mm. I needed to feel different. I I needed, not different to other people, but I needed to change the way that I felt. Um, and Mm. the way that I felt was really sad, was really insecure. I had no idea to be honest, why I'd been put on this earth. I was trying to work out what's Mm. my purpose here. And like life so far has been pretty sad and scary. I'm like, is this life? Is this, you know, what it's supposed Mm. to be? Because if it is, I'm not sure how how long I'm going to last, you know. So you Um, lacked identity, you mm -hmm. lacked purpose, and you Mm -hmm. lacked joy. Definitely. Mm. Definitely lacked joy. So joy, purpose, and identity, they, they were missing mm. from your life. They were. And then you discovered alcohol. Mm-hmm. About that. I did. And um, so I was 14 when I had my first drink at my cousin's place in Queensland and or mm. Brisbane. Um, and it was a party. We are out the back and I got a 375 ml of Bundaberg rum and I remember my friend saying, you know, you've got to mix that with Coca-Cola. And I said, no, nah, I've never had this. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know I don't want it watered down. You know, I want the full effect of whatever this is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what their reaction was, but I do remember having that feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. And I also remember it burning the heck out of my throat, um, but I didn't care. I drank that 375 in I don't know how how long. It wouldn't have been too long. Um I think I remember seeing my Doc Martens <laughs> and then probably face planted into the ground <laughs> and that was it. And I blacked out and from my very first drink, I was a blackout drinker, you know, and I didn't, mm. um, I actually didn't know that that, I mean, I knew that I'd drunk a bit, but I didn't know that, not, I thought everyone blacked out. I, mm. I literally thought if every, after one drink, no one can remember what goes on. But yeah, I woke up the next day and I thought, gee, I wonder when I can do that again. <laughs> What did it give you? Hope. Why did you want? It gave me gave, hope. Gave you hope. Why? It what? gave me hope. Why did it give you hope? Because it gave me relief, and mm. because innately I knew actually that I didn't want to die, um, although I carried on about that. Innately, I knew there must be another way to living, um, 
and I'd found the easier, softer way. It's better than self-harming. It's better than talking about suicide. I can actually drink, mm. find that joy that you spoke of, mm. and maybe I can get through life. Like maybe I can actually, mm. yeah. Um, and it really did give me give me hope because I thought, well, I think, yeah, I've found I've found my way, and so, so I began. It numbed just, your pain. Absolutely, it numbed my pain, yeah. but. But it also uh, it also made me feel normal. I didn't necessarily drink mm. to fit in because mm. I didn't fit in. I knew I didn't really drink like others. But I did drink to feel normal. I did drink to try and experience what, what other people looked like they were experiencing, mm. which was fun, and you know, and and that for some time I did have. It's just that I, I, you know, I could never set a limit. I'd always go beyond, um, yeah, what my mm. limit was, and. Physically, I just couldn't manage. Did alcohol give you the tribe that you craved? Did it give you social connection that you didn't have before? Um, yeah, I suppose it did. It gave me an identity as the, the big drinker, the, you know, um, as much as that's not really, um, I didn't wake up and want to be famous for that or, you know, it... It, it gave me a place, I suppose, amongst my peers in, in a social group. I, the, the sorts of people that were drawn to me and that I was drawn mm. to tended to be misfits of some description. Um, and we liked that. You know, we were mm. sort of misfits. And I suppose somehow I thought that that was kind of cool. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't really able to establish deep, you know, and effective um, relationships. It, they were very superficial. So, you know, if you weren't going to come and drink with me or vice versa, like we had nothing in common. Uh, yeah, mm. I'm not, I'm not right. meeting you for a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. But there was a point of communion, wasn't there? And that was there. There was. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, so it took me mm. out of isolation mm. and um, mm. ironically left me in isolation 20 years later. But yeah. Mm. When did you notice or... What were the harms that you noticed that, that you began to start uh, experiencing? At that age? In, no, no, no. Let's, let's um, go forward a little bit. So you, you now established yourself as a, as a drinker. It's given you an identity. Mm -hmm. It's given you mm -hmm. a, a circle of acquaintances, if not friends. Yes. It's taken away the pain. You feel mm -hmm. a little bit normal. Mm -hmm. That's the upside when did you start experiencing the downside and what the was that downside? Um, the downsides began um, probably, yeah, late teens, early 20s. I began mm. to have accidents. Um, I uh, fell over and broke my nose at one stage, which mm. was not a pleasant experience. Um, and, yeah, woke up in hospital having my nose rebroken and, mm. yeah, ordinary. Um I, I woke up in many hospitals, actually. Um, I was once told that I was scraped off like a three or four lane highway. So um, I don't know what I was doing on that highway. They said that there were no cuts and, and grazes. So we could only deduce that maybe I'd done that on purpose. Um, so these are the sorts of things. I wasn't able to guarantee my behavior. You know, I, mm. I, um, what other things? I lost my license. Um, mm. I lost it for 15 months, but I didn't get it back for about four or five years um, because I didn't bother. Like once mm. I just started, I thought, well, 
um, obviously I started catching rides or getting taxis or public transport and somewhere along the line I thought, well, why I'm drinking so much, I I actually shouldn't have a licence anyway. It Mm. took me years and years to get it back. Um, Mm. Like I had to have lessons again just to get my licence back. I'd forgotten how to drive. Um, I began to lose some friendships. I Mm. uh, began to... I'm just trying to think if I've actually lost a job directly. Not really. I, I took a lot of sick time off um, different jobs, um, but I haven't actually mm. lost a job directly. But, yeah, I, I certainly I certainly wasn't promoted. <laughs> so, it, right. yeah. So the costs, the costs to you were physical health and risk because mm-hmm. you, you've, you've, we've, we've described your experiences in hospital. You yep. say you've lost friendships. Yeah. At what point did you hit rock bottom? What 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 was the what was the time when you felt oh enough's enough? I've got to do something about this. Um. Okay. So when I I hit rock bottom, basically, oh gosh, I hit a number of rock bottoms, but um, the real rock bottom happened quite a bit later in my early thirties when. I had wanted, um, you know, to get married, to have a career, to have a house and to have children. And if I have all of those things, then I'm fine in life, then I'm sorted um, and uh, my drinking will no doubt get better because once I've got those things that are going to fill me up and, and fill that, that void, then I'll be okay and my drinking will, you know, will sort itself out and I'll mature and whatever. I hit rock bottom when I had all of those things and my drinking was worse than ever. And in fact, mm. I was, I, it was scary. I was closer to death than I'd ever been. And mm. yet I had all of this stuff to lose now. So I thought, mm. gee, all the stuff, all the things that I thought were going to fix me, they're in front of me and they haven't fixed me. I've got worse. Mm. Um, and that was really frightening. So that was my rock bottom, not mm. being able to stop when I had every reason in the world to stop. So what did you do then? So evidently I must have called around a whole heap of rehabs one night because I don't recall, but they started calling back the next day and I'm thinking, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> you know? And um, anyway, the first one that called back um, was, uh, yeah, one that's not too far from where I am. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of called that, call it a bit of a God job um, because it was one that was run by peers and it had a really strong 12-step um, focus. So, yeah, they, they called back and I, she asked me how much I drank. I said between one and two bottles a day, which was actually half of what I drank. And she said, gee, darling, you know, you, you better, you'll need to come in here. You'll need to detox, what have you. Um, and I remember thinking, God, if she's saying that on half of what I'm actually drinking, like mm. I really need to be at this place. I mean, I expected yeah. to hear, oh, no, you're not actually that bad just yet. So, mm. you know, well. And, um, and this woman sounded worried for me. I was like, oh, mm. is it? Maybe it is bad. Yeah. So you went into detox? Yes. And so I went into detox and actually a 28-day program. So I guess, yeah, the first initial stage would have been mm. considered detox and then yeah. some stabilization after that. Mm. And what would you say about the experience? Um, it was amazing. I... The very first thing I realised was, number one, that I wasn't alone, which is Mm. I can't put words on how much of a relief that was. You Mm. know, there were other women there. Um, 
because I thought I'd be the only female or alcoholic. Um, there were other parents there. They were nice people. They weren't, let's face it, scum of the earth that I thought alcoholics would be. Um, it wasn't the man, you know, on the park bench with the paper bag, as we always hear. And to me, that's what an alcoholic was. I mean, I, I've come from a family where people die from alcoholism. So, you know, to me, you don't recover. You just manage a disease or an illness. And, um, yeah, suddenly there's people around who are good people and, um, and they're getting well. And it gave me a, a huge amount of hope. Right. So you went through your detox and then mm -hmm. what did you do? What, what, what was the next step for you in your recovery? Um, yeah, so then, well, you know, I stayed for the 28 days. I mm. became, you know, physically well, mentally mm. somewhat more well, you know, emotionally a bit more balanced. And I came out and, um, and I began, um, I really sort of, I... Yeah, got into a 12-step program, basically, and so began to look at uh, recovery outside of a, of a um, rehabilitation centre, and that's what I did. So you went to the 12-step program after your detox, and how many days did you attend that program? Once I came out of the mm. um, facility. Um, mm. So I attended 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah, um, pro yeah probably a bit more than that mm. um, initially. Right. And yeah. And then and then what happened? Ninety after ninety and ninety and then what happened? Then it just got a bit boring, Fergal. <laughs> and I was just looking I was looking for um, you know, the the colour the colours back in my life and yeah. you know, I began to began to fantasize about all the good times and I began mm. to tell myself that I was missing out on all this fun, forgetting about yeah. the hospitals and the, you know, um, just the, yeah. the train wreck uh, that was reality. Um, yeah. I didn't look at any of those things and I began to feel sorry for myself. Um, yeah. I began to feel lonely, left out. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So you felt as if you were in control, you were cured. And then, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I felt that I'd ticked all the boxes, that yeah. I'd done everything that had been asked of me, yeah. that I had... Um, recovered physically, I had all the blood tests, my liver was okay now mm. and, you know, everything was back on track. There was nothing was inflamed and I even, the peripheral neuritis that had started in my hands and feet was, I didn't have that anymore. Mm. Like there was no pins and needles, there were no numb patches and mm. physically I began to feel really well. Um, mm. And you know what, I think I ended up, I just forgot, I forgot that you know, mm. that I'm an alcoholic and that alcoholics yeah. like me really shouldn't have that first drink. Right. So then you need a second, you needed a, a second rock bottom, didn't you, to actually realize, whoops, I've got to do something about that. What, what happened then? Yeah. Um, you mean the second rock bottom or? Yeah, yeah the second rock bottom. Uh, there was a, look, there was a period. Between, so I ended up relapsing at about four months. I had about four months recovery and it mm. was, um, you know, for the most part, it was wonderful. It just got difficult towards the end. And, yeah. you know, it became really difficult to manage, you know, my thinking because I hadn't really changed my thinking or my behaviours. Like I'd, I'd taken myself away from alcohol, but I hadn't replaced it with a solution as such. I'd just listened yeah. to a whole lot of stuff and I hadn't actually done anything. So, yeah. so yeah, it began to become really uncomfortable and my natural state of being discontent and feeling mm -hmm. fearful and anxious and sad and, you know, mm -hmm. Um, 
everything began began to kind of um, weigh my shoulders down and eventually I thought I need relief and I looked for relief and I found it, you know, where I knew I'd find it, where it had always mm. been waiting. Yeah. And um, so I got temporary relief um, mm. and that sort of continued on and off for six months until I really hit my proper rock bottom, which mm-hmm. on the surface was actually not as bad as the rock bottom prior to going into treatment. It's just yeah. that it wasn't a surface rock bottom. It was this really internal yeah. um, understanding and acceptance. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so your last drink was when? So my last drink was the 19th of November, 2011. Um, How many yeah. Years ago so that? I'm just, that was nine years ago, just coming up mm-hmm. um, to nine years. Uh, and almost coming up to 10 years since I went into treatment. So, right. yeah, it's been a ride. So what I'm hearing is that actually you needed, you needed multiple opportunities to actually engage with the treatment that you uh, ultimately needed to, to get recovery. It, was, it wasn't a, a, I'm sick, I need help, therefore I'm going to get cured and therefore I'm fine. It was, you didn't mm-hmm. have a one-off return to normality for you it was it was a series of bumps along the road it was yeah it certainly yeah. I, I just basically say it wasn't it wasn't a hole in one it was um it yeah it was a whole lot of mm. small experiences that mm. i guess yeah molded into one and became my yeah. recovery and and recovery yeah. is so individual for people yeah. um in terms of what helps me an enormous amount, um, you know, obviously being a 12-step program, that's not so, to me, that's not, I mean, that is individual, but to me, that is one of the big, you know, answers. But um, mm-hmm. it also helps enormously to have counselling. Um, I obviously needed that intervention from doctors, from hospitals, you know, mm-hmm. the doctors saved my life and um, a 12-step program prolongs my life, you know. Right. So let's go back to the concept of identity because you you mentioned at the first in the, the first part of your story that alcohol gave you identity. Mm-hmm. Now it's abstinence from alcohol that gives you that same identity and also that purpose within this twelve step program, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you asked me about all the things that I am today, and although. Um, like it was hard to hear you say you're successful at this or you're success, you know, because I don't, I don't know, I don't see that. I just see a really ordinary life today that is remarkable to me because it's so ordinary. Like if I pick my children up from school, like I am like almost crying inside with joy, you know, that's like a big deal for me, whereas mm. everyone else is like, oh, God, here we go. You know, it's those ordinary things that, that just mean so much. Mm. So, um but yeah, I found that joy that you were talking about that was lacking, and mm-hmm. um, it's not so you, a one-stop shop, though. I don't no. know exactly where I found it. It just mm-hmm. it just it's, happened it's along the way. And the other thing yeah. is, the other thing that Twelve Step has given you is is, is given you a tribe, a, a community. Yeah, you, you can't do this on your own. And no. I think I think you know that's one of the messages that we have to um, highlight is that. For people who are going through alcohol use disorder, alcohol dependency, you cannot do it on your own. What would you say to that? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you've just you've hit the nail on the head. There's a, I tried to for 20 mm. years and, yeah. you know, a stigma stopped me from mm. saying something for a long time. Fear of, you know, I knew deep down that if I say something, a doctor will tell me not to drink again. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but yeah. um, so that that. I was fearful of that. But, yeah, I've met this whole community of people who have gone before me and some who have come after me. Everybody is um, just, I mean, so understanding. It's, it's, they, we just know exactly how the newcomer feels um, and we give away what was freely given to us. So it's just mm-hmm. this chain of knowledge and of, you know, it sounds silly, but just love and care and compassion for someone mm. who's really unwell. And, you know, nowhere else in the world did I feel quite so as accepted as mm. as a 12-step program because, yeah, they accepted me for who I was at that time and I wasn't that likeable back then, mm. you know. So, Chrissy, I'm really looking forward to hearing your story in sections and each section that we're going to do, we're going to break down and, and go into a little bit of depth So I really think that you're very brave and I think you're a success and I'm very grateful for the fact that you've agreed to share your story in more detail in the following series. Thank you so much, Chrissy, for giving us your story. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. See you soon. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thank you for watching. We'll see you in the next episode.